Good morning, good morning. Glad to see each one of you and your smiling faces this morning. We're so glad that you've joined us to worship our God. You know, we're here to celebrate. We're here to celebrate that our God is alive. And what a happy day it was when each one of us met him. Amen? And so when we met him, we know that our life turned completely around. And he took our sin and he gave us his righteousness. He took our sorrow and he gave us joy. And so now we can come before him this morning and celebrate his goodness and his grace and his mercy towards us. So I invite you to stand and let's sing about that happy day when Jesus took our sins away.
Well, we're going to keep worshiping, but go ahead and take a seat so we can um, continue worshiping God by giving our tithes and offerings. We're also going to continue to worship God um, through song as well. And so, ushers, if you'd come and receive the morning offering. God, we thank you that, oh, it was a joyful, joyful, happy day when you saved us, when we, our eyes were opened to your light of truth, and when you came into our lives and changed us forever. So, God, we are grateful, happy people this morning, celebrating, knowing that you are our God, our Savior, our Lord. So we give to you this morning, we ask that you bless this money for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Forget the wonder of how you brought deliverance, the exodus of my heart. You found me, you freed me, held back the waters for my release. Oh, Yahweh, you're the God who fights for me, the Lord of every victory. Of all you've done, death is swallowed up forever. 
All my words fall short. All my words fall short. I've got nothing new. How could I express all my gratitude? I could sing these songs as I Every song must end, and you So I throw up my hands and praise you again and again. Cause all that I have is a Again and again, 'cause all that I have is a hallelujah. 
for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we read, He, talking about God, God made Him, Jesus, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. As we come to the communion table this morning, as you receive those elements of the bread representing Christ's body and his in the cup representing Jesus' blood. We want to be we want to remember of what Jesus did for us as we've been singing. He gave his life. God gave Jesus to be in our place. He took our sin, gave us his righteousness. So as you receive those elements, I want to encourage you to ponder that. Think about that. Do business with God if you need to. And then make sure that we turn our expressions of gratitude towards him. This is a meal of thanksgiving. Thanking God for his incredible grace and what he's done for us. Ushers, would you come and serve the people? Without hope, with no place to begin 
Your love made a way to let mercy come in When death was arrested and my heart began Ash was redeemed, only beauty remains My orphan heart was given a name my morning grew quiet, my feet rose to dance When death was arrested and my life began Oh, your grace so free washes over me You have made me It's your endless love pouring down on us. You have made us new now, life begins with you. Release from my chains, I'm a prisoner no more. My shame was a ransom, you faithful
stand before the Lord. God, as we stand before you, we are marveled by your grace and your mercy. That you would choose to call us from eternity past to be your children. And God, we confess that sin separated us from you. Yet in your grace and your mercy, you provided that sacrifice that would pay the penalty for our sin so that we might be redeemed. Lord, we thank you that you've given us a hope and a future. Jesus, we thank you for sacrificing your body for us. Taking upon yourself the curse of sin so that we might receive your righteousness. Let's hold up the bread before the Lord. God, we thank you for this piece of bread. We know and we confess there's nothing magical in this piece of bread. It's just bread. But what it represents is the transformational power to go from a body of death to a body of life. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you gave yourself for us. And you took upon yourself the curse of sin, the punishment of sin, the wrath of your Father, so that we might have newness of life. As we receive this bread, we receive it as a grace gift from you. In honor of you. 
and celebrating you, Lord Jesus, for all that you've given to us. We take this bread together as one body of faith under wedding Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, let's all take the bread together. As we hold this cup, we consider what it represents, what it reminds us of. The sin that separated us from God required a blood sacrifice to restore us. For a long time, God demanded a blood sacrifice of bull and goats, but they would only cover for a short time the, the sin of man. It wasn't permanent. It wouldn't be until Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, would sacrifice Himself, His blood, that we would be, by a term, washed in the blood. That our sin would be washed away and removed. What you hold in your hand is a reminder of the redemption. The reminder of our sanctification. And a reminder of a promised glorification that one day we will stand before a holy God, holy and blameless. In fact, we're already there now. And that's why we're so thankful. Let's hold this cup up. God, we thank you for this cup and all it reminds us of. The love and the sacrifice that you've poured out to us, Lord Jesus. We thank you for the blessing of this cup. We praise you for it. As we receive it together, we do so as one body of faith under the one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we confess him as our Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all receive that. Thank you, Lord.
Thank you for all that you've done as we've just celebrated. Now we turn our attention to your word. Teach us, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. For those of you that have had kids, especially kids that have gone through, uh, they've gone out of the whole toddler and elementary, and they've kind of transitioned. I want you to think back in those times in the middle of the night when your child was crying because they couldn't get comfortable. Remember those times when they were going through growing pains? And they're like, oh, and they're just suffering, and, they're, and, and there's like nothing you can do, it seems like, to make them feel comfortable. Because as they're growing, their body is stretching, and they're going through all of those troubles. And growing pains is a difficult thing. It, it, there are some people that I know that... Uh, you know, and I, I, I take a look at some of our kids in children's ministry, and, you know, they start out really, you know, small, and then I, I blink, and they're like this big. I feel sorry for you families having to feed those kids, but it's inevitable. Why? Because with growth comes change. And change, sometimes, in fact, most of the time, is difficult. I don't like change, I like things the way that they are, they're predictable. They're understandable. I can be prepared for them. But when change comes and it is inevitable, everything is in change. Everything is going to be changing. So, I don't know, there's an old saying, suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> Things are going to change. And, and it's inevitable because God is growing His church and, and growing us. And, and the church was experiencing at this time in Acts chapter 6 a, a time of a growing of change. It was anticipated there was going to be persecution that was happening. There was new people coming. Um, some of the challenges, you think about some of the challenges we've read about in the change. It started with 12 and then went to 120 and then it went to 5,000. And, and so now they've got the growing pains of like, how do we take care of all of these people? How do we feed all of these people that are here and wanting to learn and wanting to grow? And oh, by the way, it's not just the Hebrews, but it's also some of the other people that are starting to attend. And so there's more people that are coming and you don't know everybody. It's like, who are these new people that are coming? Well, it's growing. And, when, and with that, with the additions, there's a lot of complications. You think about all the complications that happen and grow. When you get married, there's just the two of you. Well, as your family grows, then the whole dynamic of just the two of you now has a baby. Is there growing pains that come with a baby? Oh, Yeah. Growing pains because every addition with that. So a growing family becomes a little bit difficult. And so you get one, and then you add another one, then you add another one. My wife and I, we had two. And I thought, you know, we're done. And then 
I waffled on it and said, you know, I'd really like for a, a son. And so talked to the wife, and Wendy says, yeah, okay, we, we were set. God decided to give us twins. The only time in our whole marriage that my wife hated me. Growing pains. Growing pains that are difficult in a business. As businesses grow, you've got to change. You've got to adjust. You start with an idea and it grows and then you start adding employees. Is there difficulty in growing pains and adding employees? Yes, there is. <laughs> Why? Because they all bring different dynamics. And, and you think about community growth. When I came here in 2001, it was way different than it is today. And you see a lot of the growing pains in a growing community, and you start adding different people from different walks. When the mills shut down, did this community drastically change? Yes. And so now we've become a bedroom community. And so there's all kinds of different growing pains that come along with that, like traffic through Scapoose. Oh, my goodness. You know, you think about all of those things. Those are all growing pains that come with the development of, of this growth and well, how do you address it? Can you ignore growth? Well, you can try. Can you avoid growth? Probably not. Can you adjust to the growth? Yeah, that's probably what you need to do. And to navigate that is really, really difficult. And it's hard. When we talk about the body of Christ, was it Jesus' intention to keep the body of Christ to 12 no. He said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Here is your mission. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all of Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Now, is that a, a mission statement that says you will be growing? Absolutely. Now, you think about the diversity that comes in that statement. From the Jewish culture, they're not, no longer going to be hanging out with just the Jews, are they? They're going to be hanging out with Gentiles and people that are in different cultures within this. And so the mission of the church from the get-go is to grow. To grow and to grow not just in numbers, but demographic growth. Diversity. In other words, the church by intention is designed to grow both exponentially in numbers, but also in diversity in different cultures. To be able to reach the loss of every demographic on the planet. That's the intention of God. Is that none would perish, but all should come to repentance. Jesus didn't say, look it, I want you to pray for your silo and just start your silo. You know what a silo is? It's where you hang out with people that look like you, that act like you, that, and it's, a silo is a container. He didn't say, pray, so the silos are full. Let's send forth laborers to work in the silos. No. He said, pray, because the harvest fields are white unto harvest. And pray for laborers in the harvest fields. The harvest fields is a place of growth, where silos are just containers. We need to push back against silo mentality and realize that God's called us to grow. And that's what's going on here in Acts chapter 6. The Christian church in Jerusalem is growing. 
It is growing because of the power and the work of the Holy Spirit through the 12 apostles, the 120. We studied in Acts chapter 2 where there was 3,000, Acts chapter 4 where there was 5,000. Now it is growing and what's happening with that growth and the power of the Spirit is moving beyond just the Hebrew Christians or the Jewish Christians, but now it's moving into the Hellenist Jews which would become the Hellenist Christians, and we'll unpack who they are. But the lesson is this. How you handle ministry growth is, is, is very simple. Add more workers. Add more workers. But with growth comes problems. I love Acts chapter 6 because it really gives a, a footprint on how the church not only should grow, but should handle ministry growth. And what's necessary in order for the church to keep on growing. And the danger if the church doesn't handle it well. And why it will stop growing. So let's go ahead and let's stand and we read through chapter 6. May the Holy Spirit open the eyes of your understanding. Really speak to your heart about your place in this chapter. Acts 6.1 says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because the widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles after praying. They laid hands on them, and the word of God note, kept on spreading... And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, including Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. And they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit which he was speaking. And then they secretly induced men to say, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. And they put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against the holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So initially, what do we see? Well, in, in Luke's account is he's writing to Theophilus about the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. This is how the church came into being. This is how it is growing. Acts chapter 6 begins a transition. 
The transition from Acts 6 all the way into Acts 8 is where the gospel is now moving away from focusing just on the, the Hebrew Jews and now moving beyond into the Gentiles or some of the non-Hebrew Jews that are there that are from different cultures that are in there. And so what is Acts 6.1 at this time? Well, it go, you have to go back to verse 42 of the previous chapter. At this time, what was going on? 42 tells us, Every day the temple, from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus, as is the Christ. If you remember, there was great persecution. They said, stop teaching about Jesus. Right? They beat him, whipped him. And what they do? They kept on teaching. So, persecution didn't stop them. Would diversity stop the gospel? It's a challenge and it's a threat. But the gospel won't be stopped by this diversity that takes place. In fact, it's expanding, but it's a challenge. It's a challenge to minister to people that look differently than you, that live culturally different than you within this. But the gospel is a gospel unto salvation for everybody that would believe, whether Jew or Gentile, free or, or, or slave, any of them. It's, it's an inclusive gospel, and that is the case here to these Grecian Jews, these Hellenistic Jews that are there. Now, keep in mind, as you read this, we have to caution ourselves against taking our westernized modern church theology and putting it on the church here. These are people that are coming to faith in Jesus Christ from a Jewish religious background and also a Jewish culture. So what is happening is their faith is transitioning from a faith in the law and works to a faith in grace, but they're still practicing as Jews and meeting in synagogues on the Sabbath, and then on Sunday they're meeting for teaching because the synagogue was the central place for all life. So in our mind, when someone converts to Christianity, they leave everything behind. Well, in the Jewish culture, especially in the birth of the church, they weren't leaving everything behind because it was their life. So they would continue to meet in the synagogues and these places of gatherings that are there and the homes, and they would practice all the Jewish customs that are there. One of the strong Jewish customs of the day that even transcends today is the custom of benevolence. After our service this morning, after the sermon, we're going to have that time because we still practice benevolence today. But it finds its roots, benevolence, which is the giving, the charitable giving, it finds its roots in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18 says this, He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So what had happened, because it's a strong cultural norm for the, the Jews to be able to gather up provision to give to the widow, to the orphan, to the stranger, and they would do it daily, so you would come daily to be able to receive those things, well, the Christian church says, this is what we did as Jews. Now we're still going to continue on. It's a good thing. So they continue on doing it to be able to meet out these daily distributions of the food and the resources that were there within this. But there was a conflict, as verse 1 says. There was a complaint. As the numbers were increasing, both numerically and demographically, there was a complaint that rose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews. Now, these would be... Jews that speak Greek. That's what a Hellenistic Jew is. 
A Hellenistic Jew is a Jew that speaks Greek. Why would they speak Greek? Because these are Jews that have come from different foreign lands from the, from the dispersion prior to Christ when Jews were scattered throughout the land. They would go and inhabit different places, but then they would return back into Jerusalem. So they were coming from different lands. So they were Jews speaking Greek, and they had widows whose needs were being overlooked. And so within this, they would gather together specifically in their own Hellenistic synagogues. When you go to Israel today, and we do these trips all the time, Jerusalem itself is set up on quarters. So you have Arab quarters, you have Christian quarters, you have the Ethiopian quarters, you have um, Arab there's four quarters. I can't remember what the other one is. Christian quarters, I think it is. Uh, so you have the, it's, and it's, it's, they're silos, and it's where people of the same culture and worship style would meet together. So what would happen is that these, these believers um, were meeting in the synagogues, but they were meeting to be taught in Greek. So these were Greek Jews meeting in a synagogue, but the Torah and the Talmud and the rabbinical teaching was all being done in Greek for the Jews. But now they're Christians that are in there. Have I complicated it for you? They're still meeting culturally. And so all of the widows are all getting together based on their, their ethnics and their community. Excuse me. And as they were doing that, they had one motto. No one goes without. Take care of the needy. We see it in Acts chapter 2, verse 44. And all those that believed were together had all things in common. Acts 4:32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Not one of them claimed anything belonging to him was his own, and all things were in common property to them. So within this, we have a strong biblical ethic. This biblical ethic of making sure that no one in the congregation goes without carried forward when Paul would write to Timothy in telling them to take care of the widows and the orphans, and you can read about it in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 9-16. through 16. Also, James, the brother of Jesus, in James chapter 1, verse 27, says this, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and Father is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained by the world. So what do we have? A growing pain. A threat to the church. A conflict that has arisen within this new church, this new category of Christian believers that are practicing benevolence. But there's a group, a subcategory of these Hellenistic widows that were being overlooked. Why? Because of the cultural animosity between those that were really Jew and Jewish indeed... They did everything Jewish versus the Greek-speaking Jews that met on their own. So when the distribution would come in, they would say, well, we're taking care of our own. Why aren't you taking care of yours? And that was a problem. And so it came to the attention that there was an attack, uh, this, this situation that needed to be dealt with. In every growing church, in every growing community, there will be conflict. Guaranteed. Why? Because with the diversity of people that are entering into community comes a diversity of needs and a diversity of perceptions. 
And so we have to understand the fact that when we come together, we're bringing with us our needs and we're bringing with us our perceptions. Now, how do you navigate conflict? How do you work through conflict when you have some very valid perceptions? And mind you, they're both coming from the same place, aren't they? From a biblical perception of benevolence being important, an act of worship, and togetherness. Yet, it was being divided by the cultural differences. So, what do you do in a situation? Well, here's the model. The twelve were summoned to the congreg- and summoned the congregation. They brought the need forward. So, what happens is you need to be able to meet the need by looking for spirit-filled leaders. You look for spirit-filled leaders and you first address the need. Publicly. So they got the twelve together. The twelve heard about the need. And the twelve always represents the original twelve apostles. The eleven plus Matthias. That was all brought together. They would be equal to our modern day eldership. Here we have an institution of what is called church polity. Or it's the church governance. The way that the church was being governed. So the twelve were equal in nature. And they would come together, they summoned the congregation together to demonstrate what is known as apostolic authority. As the apostles in authority, they gathered the congregation together and said, we need to have a discussion. Now, it's interesting about this. The problem was with the Hellenistic division with its in the church. Why am I bringing the Hebrew Christians in to solve a Hellenistic problem. Because they are one body. And they are serving one God in one faith. And even though there is one group that's not being ministered to, it affects the whole. And it's creating a conflict within it. And so it needs to be held um, in a public setting within this. Because the issue was affecting the unity. And the duty of the twelve were to lead boldly through this conflict. And so that's what they do. They gather them together. Leadership of these 12 was not done in a vacuum. It's important to note, though, the community, the congregation, as we would see, are not telling the 12 what to do. The 12 are leading in conversation. They're looking for input. They're looking for consideration. They want to be of one mind and one heart. And so they want to be able to be in that place of leading from a strength. And so within this, they bring the whole congregation together to be able to hear from them, create a decision, and get affirmation from the congregation of the decision of the twelve. So the twelve will clearly lead through this, but they get input from the congregation and affirmation on the decision. The conflict is revealed. We see this in verse 12. They said, well, we see that's the neglecting. But here's the challenge and here's the conflict. The 12 are saying, it's not right for us to leave the ministry, the serving up of the Word of God and in prayer, to do the ministry over here to meet the daily distribution. There's only so much of us and so much to do. So the problem is, daily... Somebody's got to man the tables to hand out the food. Now, us 12, we've also got to spend time in prayer and we've got to spend time in teaching. 
So for us to leave this teaching and prayer and go do tables is not desirable. Why? Because it affects the growth and it's not their calling and it's not their role. It's not a, it's not a situation of, of leadership, um, elitism. But within this, we need to understand that there needs to be volunteers. There is a sense of, how would we say, entitlement that comes in the modern church today. I show up and you serve me. That is not the model of the early church. The early church was made up of all volunteers and every person in the church volunteered. They had a role. But here's an example in the early church of the conflict that came up because the people weren't stepping up to volunteer. And so by default, what would happen is, because the buck stops with leadership, the leaders would have to leave the teaching of the Word to go do what the volunteers were supposed to do. Mind you, they were all volunteers. There was nobody paid in the early church. They were full-time ministry and, and just getting along as much as they could. And so within this, we see this group that is there within this. And potentially, there could be Hebrews that would minister to the Grecian widows, if necessary. But it's a, it, the problem, and it's important to understand, is not an apostolic leadership problem. It's a congregation problem. Because the problem isn't that the, the apostles aren't doing their job, it's the congregations that's not doing their job within this. And so they, they need to address it. So in verse 2, the apostles address it. He says, look, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve table. Now, if you look at verse 1, it says there's a problem because the widows are being what? Neglected. That word means to overlook. It is not good for the spiritual leaders that's job is to, to pray and to lead in the teaching of the word to overlook that to take care of this. So what do we do? Well, we come up with a collaborative solution. And that's what they did. They said, therefore, here's what the elders, the twelve said, therefore, brethren... Select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we, elders, twelve, may put in charge of this. Here's the collaboration. You, Hellenists, that are now complaining because your widows are not being taken care of, you bring forth some names. And here's the criteria that we are setting. The criteria is they need to be full of the Holy Spirit first. Good reputation, second. Good administrators, third. Why? Because they're going to be an administrator and they're going to be able to serve well, handling money, being of good reputation, but most importantly, full of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because acts of service begins with a spiritual work. Acts of service begins with a spiritual work. If you're a janitor in the church, you need to be full of the Holy Spirit. Why? It's a spiritual work as you're serving unto God. It's not a job. It's a ministry. Ministry should never be a job. Ministry, diakonos, literally means to serve. And you're not serving the people necessarily. You're serving God through serving the people within that. 
You're serving the Lord within this. And they said, you, you pick out these people, bring them here so that we may put them in charge. Note the apostolic authority. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And in the church polity, now we have another division started. So now we have those that are, that are going to be the presbuteros, the, the ones that are the spiritual teachers and leaders. And then you have the diakonos, those that are the servants or the deacons. So now you're having elders and deacons that are all part of this. The ones that are handling the spiritual teaching and these things. And those that are handling the physical aspects. But note, the quality, qualification is the same. They both have to be full of the Spirit. They both have to be good reputation. And they both have to have good administration. Why? Because you are responsible with the sacred Word of God. Be able to handle it. You say, well, how is handing food out the sacred Word of God? It's benevolence. And it's loving people through these loving actions. We see that these qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that is there. In our church and in most churches, you should have some kind of ministry application. When you volunteer here, it doesn't matter what you're volunteering for, there is a section in there that asks, are you saved? What is your testimony? That's important. Because... In, in whatever aspect you serve, whether it's a nursery ministry or you're up here on stage and worship team, you are representing God to people, full of the Spirit. Well, the servants, according to Luke's account, are identified. We're given this, this list. Notice the statement found approval with the whole congregation. Like, we like that idea. And they chose Stephen and Philip and, and Procurus. It's interesting that Stephen and Philip are the first two names, and then the other five we, we never really hear about much more. Stephen, why? Because we see a link beginning. The link goes from Peter and John and the ministry to the Jews, and now Stephen comes on scene. Now Stephen is going to be first and full of the Holy Spirit, but we're going to see how Stephen, by the end of this, becomes an evangelist. How Philip, by the end of this, becomes an evangelist. Why? Because he's full of the Holy Spirit. Just because you start in one area of ministry doesn't necessarily mean you're going to stay there. There's gateways. And I guarantee you, if you are full of the Holy Spirit and growing in the Lord, the ministry you start in will not be the ministry you finish in. Because God's going to take you on this journey and moving you through. But there are gateways. You say, well, what's my gateway? Well, I can tell you this. Wendy needs nursery workers. Christine needs Sunday school workers. You say, well, I want to be up on stage. I want to lead music up here. Great. Before you get up here, you know what we need? We need someone downstairs to lead the kids in song. You say, well, I don't want to be on the lower rung. There is no upper rung or lower rung. We're all together working. But one works in their giftedness, the other works in their giftedness, and then you are proven through. Stephen would become the first martyr of the church. But he started out handing out bread at the table. But he was full of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit would lead him. Philip would lead a great mission, and then taken out and transported and be able to share the gospel with them. They said, find out these guys. They find these guys, the seven. They brought them before them in verse 6 and praying and laying on their hands on them. What is the laying on of hands? It's the recognition and transferring of power. It would be equal to ordination. I'm saying you are ordained for this purpose. And notice it is the function of the twelve that are laying hands on the seven, saying, 
under our authority, they have authority to make this distribution, to do that work, to recognize. We do that with our elders. We do it with pastoral ministry. We'd be able to serve within that. Where does it come from? Numbers 27, 18. God ordained this method by which of transfer of power. He says this. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit and lay your hands on him. Why? Because it's the public recognition. Everybody understood who Moses was. But the question after Moses was gone was, Joshua, who put you in charge? But the laying on of hands shows the definite transfer of authority. So at the table, Stephen, you made a decision. Who put you in charge? Peter and the other twelve. Do you remember the laying on of hands within that? And so it, it establishes this structure that is within the church. And so what ends up happening when, when there is order that is put into the church, what happens? Well, verse 7 happens. Verse 7 says, The word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. I love verse 7. Because the collaborative solution provided the platform for growth. They all got together and they prayed about, they, they, what are we going to do? And so the, the, the twelfth led. The congregation agreed. The body was unified and the church continued to grow. Conflict within the church will stop growth. When the church is arguing about stupid things, it will hinder the growth. The church needs to come together and to be able to provide the solutions. But did you catch something that's amazing in seven? Not only did the church grow by numbers, but who else is coming to faith? The priests. The priests. Luke notes the priests are coming to faith, which is an amazing thing. Why? Because these priests are students of the Word, the Talmud, the Torah, the Mishnah. They're students of all of this. And the priest in the priesthood that is in Jerusalem is going, oh, there's something going on there. And the spiritual leaders are now coming to faith. Question, could that create a problem for the Sanhedrin and the council? Maybe a little. When all the underpriests are all coming to faith and it's the leaders, you're going, oh, wait a minute. I was good when revival was just with this small group, but now it's getting bigger, and now it's affecting our own leadership. They're jumping ship. These spiritual leaders are coming. How did the growing church grow? Through spirit-led leadership that expanded the ministry of the people and these servants. And that was a good thing. Until conflict arose where they said, we've got to take this guy out. We've got to do something different. Stephen shows up as a spirit-filled leader. One of the seven. Notice in verse 8. It says, and Stephen, one of the seven that came forward, and we don't know the time, was a spirit-filled leader that began to lead greatly in ministry. He said, full of grace and power, performing great wonders and signs among the people. We see this empowered servant, Stephen, who says, yeah, my job is to do tables. Take care of widows. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. But it's not enough. 
Why? Because he's empowered with the Spirit. He says, I've got to do something more. I want to serve some more, so I'm going, to go, I'm going to go and I'm going to help people. Well, in helping people, signs and wonders and powers and things were going, and it gave him a platform to preach. And so now his popularity was growing. And now he, like Peter, who was doing signs and wonders for the Jewish sect, is now ministering to the Grecian sect, and many Hellenists are coming to faith. And now the, the council is going, oh, this is bad. Now it's growing beyond our control. What are we going to do? Well, we've got to debate them. So in verses 9 to 15, we see this debate. And this is where Stephen gets set up within this. He gets challenged by his own community. Look at verses 9 and 10. It says this, And some of the men from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, so this would have been a synagogue that had a name called the synagogue of, of the freedmen or literally the libertines within this. And it was made up of Cyrenians and Alexandrians and from Cilicia and Asia rose up and argued with Stephen. Well, you've got to understand, synagogue was a little bit different than church. And I'm glad that we have church like we do now and not synagogue. Because synagogue back then, if you got together with synagogue, we would read a passage and then we would all have a debate over it. And so they would debate, and it was common for them to do that. Well, Stephen would go in and preach, just like Jesus would preach in the synagogue. And then they would have this discussion, but these people, they didn't like him so much. And so he was being argued with. Now, keep in mind, Stephen is a Hellenist. No doubt this was a synagogue that he was attending. And his own people were turning on him and arguing with him about the truth of this. And these freedmen, or these libertines that were there most likely were Jewish slaves that were taken over in the Pompeii, um, the Pompeii invasion that lived in, in Rome or in other places. The Cyrenians were from North Africa, Alexandria, Cilicia. What's interesting here is when you take a look at Cilicia, one of the key cities in Cilicia was Tarsus. Hmm. Who came from Tarsus? Saul. Would Saul have been in the synagogue of the freedmen? Most probably watching this debate. That's how Saul gets to the stoning of Stephen. You ever wonder how he got there? Well, he was probably in the synagogue during all of the debates and the arguments that are there. And now we can see the bridges that are all part of the story, the tapestry that God is weaving that is in this. And so they're attacking Stephen, arguing with him. But I love verse 10. They were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. In other words, we can't handle this guy. We can't shut him down. We can't keep him quiet. We can't debate him. We can't win. Why? Because he's spirit-led. Well, what does the world do when they can't shut you up? Take you out. So they attacked Stephen for serving. Verse 11 and 12, they secretly induced men. We've heard him speak blasphemous against Moses and God. Hmm. Have we heard that before? Do you know of somebody very, very famous that was accused of blasphemy? Jesus. Satan's tricks are the same. Why? Why blasphemy? Because blasphemy, if you were considered guilty of blasphemy, it was death penalty. It was considered a death penalty within this. In fact, Leviticus 24.16 says, Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. 
All the congregation shall surely stone him. And the alien, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. It's in the law. What did they do? They lied about Stephen. Did he ever blaspheme against Moses? No. Against God? No. He didn't. But they lied about him. Know this, that your enemies will lie about you in order to take you out. They will tell lies. But is it anything strange? No, because Satan is the father of lies. You know, you ever think about this idea of a lie, telling a lie about somebody? Telling a lie about people is the most, if not one of the most, if not the most effective tool that Satan can use to take out leadership. Why? Because people would rather believe a lie than truth. And lies have feet. They can travel around the world ten times faster than a truth can. And once a lie is told about you, it can never be untold. Once that lie bell has been rung, it can never be unrung. Because people have this embedded perception upon you. And it works. They told lies about Stephen. The same way they lied about Jesus, Peter and John in their trial. They couldn't publicly debate him. So behind the scenes, they wiped out his, his character. They worked at wiping out the character. So much so that they drug him away to the council. Now keep in mind, this is they were in the synagogue of the Libertines, which would have been a synagogue just in Hellenistic they drug him out to the council of the Sanhedrin, which was the 71 leaders. Question. Same 71 leaders that tried Peter and John? Yes. Same 71 leaders that tried Jesus? Yes. And they were smart. And they said, what is the lie that we will tell them? The lie that we're going to tell them about this Stephen is that he is from and supportive Jesus the Nazarene, who said he would destroy this temple, spoke blasphemy against this temple and against God. Now, that 71, would that trigger their memory about Jesus? For sure. Would it well up the same animosity and hatred that they had towards Jesus? Absolutely. And now you can understand why they got so mad. It was less about Stephen and it was more about stopping the movement because in their mind the movement had resurfaced itself. And did Jesus talk about the temple? Yes. But not in the context that they said. Mark chapter 14, verses 57-58 says, Some stood up and gave testimony against him being Jesus. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands and in three days I will build another made without hands. Was he talking about the building? He was talking about his what? His body. It's amazing how a lie can be construed in a way that can cause destruction to reputation. They manipulated it. All wrong. And so what ended up happening is they connected Stephen to Jesus. They brought about the same accusations historically against him. And as they were doing this, something miraculous happened. Look at verse 15. When you stand before your enemies and you're being falsely accused, one of the greatest things you can do is just let them speak and trust in God because something miraculous happens in verse 15. It says this, And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. 
What happened to Stephen? And I love God because he's got a great sense of humor. Stephen's face began to shine because he was a shiny kind of guy? Nope. The power of the Holy Spirit, remember, filled with the Holy Spirit, was welling up within him. And the Shekinah glory that was exhibited in the temple, that was exhibited in the presence of Moses when he was on Mount Sinai and his face shone, and on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was spending time up there preparing, had come upon Stephen. And they looked at him and went, oh. But it also shows you the blindness of sin. Now, if I would have been sitting on that council as the high priest, I would have meant, he's glowing. Not good. But in seventeen or in seven one, the high priest says this. Are these things so? He's sticking with the narrative. And it shows you how blind people can be. The church is going to grow. And it should. And there will be conflict in the growing church. Because diversity of people are being placed into the body of Christ. Along with different communities and such. But as you serve and as you enter in to serve the Lord, your service may take you to a place that you never intended it to go. When Stephen signed up on his voluntary application, he says, there was no box checked, serving tables, you know, of interest, right? You know, I'm interested in serving tables, helping the widows, and being the first church martyr. Didn't sign up for that. But what he does do, as we'll study next week, He gives the longest sermon in the whole New Testament, start to finish, and proudly proclaims the gospel. You've been called into service. Your life is going to change when you do, but it's for the glory of God, and may your face shine like the face of an angel. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that you've given us the opportunity to come to this place to worship you, to serve To minister one to another, God, I thank you that you are changing us into the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, I would ask that you would move in our hearts, even now, to set aside petty differences, to look for solutions, and find ways that we can meet the needs of the masses, the needs of the congregation, the people that are here. Lord, one of the ways that we can do that is to be able to give. On the first Sunday of the month, when we celebrate communion, one of the responses that we have is to be able to give benevolently to others. The ushers are going to come forward during this last song. And if God puts it on your heart to give, then go ahead and give. All of these resources go into an account that meets the needs of other people. That we can continue on the tradition of the church of loving God and loving one another. God, I thank you for these resources, and may you be honored by the gift and the giver. In Jesus' name, amen.
trajectory of our life be walk be a walking life towards you and God I would pray I would just beg that you would lead us in that path of righteousness that Holy Spirit you would lead us Lord we know that in this life we're gonna we're gonna have some opposition and some of it is just changed other of it is from outside of the world but as we serve you, you're going to lead us and guide us. God, we thank you for the, the ministry of your spirit. Thank you that you have called us to be your own, that you lead us and guide us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And even though we're going to walk through difficult times and even for some the valley of the shadow of death, we're never going to fear because you're with us. And even when we stand accused, lies are told about us. Holy Spirit, you will inspire us. As we go out, may our face shine, and may we bring you honor and glory. Lord, may we accept the calling into service and serve you with a whole heart. We thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, and praise Jesus. Have a blessed day, and a happy fourth. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. 
Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scapoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.